To some of the modern historians of the Sikhs, however, the explanation of Guru Gobind Singh's presence with the Mughal emperor in 1707-08 in terms of the Guru's unqualified submission to the emperor appears to be highly unsatisfactory. The acceptance of a mansab in particular appears to be in flagrant contradiction with Guru Govind Singh's character and earlier career. Ndubushan Banerjee, in his Evolution of the Khalsa, for instance, has argued at length against the service theory. Unlike Irvine, Banerjee rejects the assertions of Persian chroniclers that Guru Govind Singh had accepted an official position in the army of Bahadur Shah on the grounds that the statements about the mere presence of the Guru with the Emperor are more in consonance with the known character of Guru Govind Singh. Indeed, though Banerjee does not say so, if Wara's whole account of Guru Govind Singh is carefully examined in the light of what is now known of Guru Govind Singh, Wadid appears to be not only hostile to Guru Govind Singh, but also a very superficial and distant observer of the events of his life. J.S. Grewal, Indian History Congress, Volume 28, 1966 Assalamu alaikum. Welcome back to Season 9 of the Islamic History Podcast. This season, we are continuing our discussion of the Mughal Empire. This is Episode 9-14, Jahandar's Alliance. Before we get started, let's do a quick recap of the previous episode. After his death in February 1707, Aurangzeb's sons began vying for the Mughal throne. The three main contenders were Muazzam in Kabul, Muhammad Azam in Gujarat, and Kam Baksh in Bijapur. Muhammad Azam was the closest to Agra, so he had the best chance of claiming the treasury and the Red Fort. However, he made several miscalculations that allowed Muazzam to get there first. Meanwhile, Kam Baksh declared himself emperor even though he only controlled the Deccan. Then he began a reign of terror that cost him a lot of support. Muhammad Azam and Muazzam fought at the Battle of Jajau in June 1707, and Muazzam came away the winner. Muazzam declared himself emperor and took the name Bahadur Shah. In January 1709, Bahadur Shah clashed with Kambaksh in the Deccan, and once again Bahadur Shah came away the victor. Bahadur Shah also had to deal with a few Rajput rebels, though he ultimately forgave them. And so now, let's continue with today's episode. Marathas and Sikhs In 1707, Emperor Bahadur Shah finally figured out how to deal with the Marathas. Shahuji, the son of Sambaji, had been living in the Mughal court since his capture in 1689. We discussed this in episode 9-11. Shahuji, having lived in the Mughal court, looked up to Aurangzeb as a father figure, though he was mostly raised by Aurangzeb's daughter Zinatunisa. During this time, however, Shahuji's uncle, Raja Ram, ruled the Marathas in his name. Raja Ram died in 1700, and his son, Shivaji II, who was only four years old at the time, was then declared the new king. His mother, a woman named Tara Bai, was acting as his regent. When he learned of this, 
Bahadur Shah released Shahuji, who was now 18 years old, and sent him back to the Marathas. Bahadur Shah knew that Shahuji, the son of Sambhaji, would inevitably clash with his aunt Tara Bey and her son Shivaji II, and as expected, this led to a Maratha civil war. During this civil war, this effectively neutralized the Marathas as a threat to the Mughals, at least for a period of time. In 1708, Shahuji defeated Tara Bey and her son and became the new Maratha king. Shahuji was once again the young man who had grown up in Aurangzeb's court. Tara Bey fled to Kolhapur in southern Maharashtra in 1709 and tried to set up a rival royal court. However, she was defeated and arrested by her stepson, Sambhaji II. Sambhaji II was a son of Raja Ram, and remember Raja Ram took over as Maratha king while Shahuji was being held captive by Aurangzeb. Raja Ram's death in 1700 is what started this whole fiasco in the first place, and now his son, Sambhaji II, declared himself the new king of the Marathas in Kolhapur. So now, Shahuji the one who had been raised with Aurangzeb, went to war against Sambhaji II, who was the son of Raja Ram. Tarabai eventually reconciled with Shahuji and lived peacefully in his capital of Satara, which is also located in southern Maharashtra. And for now, during this period of chaos, the Marathas are not a problem for the Mughals. The Sikhs, on the other hand, are a different story. We discussed the Sikh leader, Guru Govind Singh back in episode 9-11. He had led a revolt against the Mughals in 1684. He had also formed the Khalsa, which is the military order of the Sikhs. And we mentioned how Aurangzeb wanted to meet with him, but he died before that could happen. It appears that the Sikh Guru Govind Singh had somewhat reconciled with the Mughals and Bahadur Shah. There are even some reports that suggest Bahadur Shah and Govind Singh were friends, as the opening quote to this episode suggests. In October 1708, however, Guru Govind Singh was assassinated by an Afghan horse trader over some personal dispute. Guru Govind Singh was the last human guru, and the Sikh holy scripture called Granth Sahib, is considered another guru, but like an eternal guru. So with Guru Govind Singh dead, a man named Banda Baragi, one of his followers, traveled to Punjab where he met with the guru's wife. Banda Bairagi claimed that the guru had entrusted him with leading a Sikh revolt against the Mughals. Well, the Sikh council supported Banda and accepted him as their leader, and the revolt was underway. Let's read a brief excerpt regarding Banda Bairagi. Banda's primary appeal lay in those parts of the sub-Himalayan interfluvial zones in the Punjab and Delhi provinces where formerly pastoralist, recently settled Jat peasants, anxious for recognition, responded to Banda's egalitarian appeal. They, and numerous lower caste or untouchables, scavengers, leather workers, traveled to Banda's camp, converted and took the name Singh as members of the Khalsa. All were prepared to fight for the new faith. John F. Richards, The Mughal Empire The Sikhs, led by Banda Bairagi, first attacked Sonipat in 1709. This is located in the modern Haryana state near Delhi. They were able to force the Mughal garrison commander to retreat into his fort. 
From there, Banda and the Sikhs advanced to Sirhind in eastern Punjab, where the aging Mughal commander Wazir Khan tried unsuccessfully to stop them, but he was out. From there, they advanced to Sirhind in eastern Punjab, where the aging Mughal commander Wazir Khan tried to stop them. However, Wazir Khan was outmaneuvered by Banda Bairagi. Here's another excerpt. In November 1709, Banda's army stormed, leveled, and massacred Samana, a prosperous Muslim-dominated Punjab town. A half-dozen Punjab towns shared a similar fate before the Sikhs reached Sirhind, where they aimed to avenge themselves on Wazir Khan. After a winter of preparation on both sides, in May 1710, Banda led thousands of badly armed peasants against Wazir Khan's artillery, Mughal cavalry, and cohorts of volunteer Muslim Ghazis. Despite their lack of firearms or horses, the Sikh army overran the Mughals and killed most of them in desperate hand-to-hand fighting. Two days later, the Sikhs stormed Sirhind, massacred those inhabitants who did not hastily convert to Sikhism, looted the city, and destroyed the buildings. After Sirhind, Banda adopted the title of Padsha, started a new calendar, and issued coins bearing the names of Gurus Nanak and Govind. Each coin displayed the cauldron of the Sikh communal kitchen and the sword of the Khalsa. By this time, in the style of a millennial leader, Banda was reputed to deflect bullets from their course and protect his men from swords and spears by his spells. John F. Richards, The Mughal Empire this led to the destruction of Sirhind, and it was absolutely brutal and terrible. The Sikhs unleashed brutal violence against Sirhind's Muslim population. Unborn children were raised up on lances, mosques were desecrated, and the town was thoroughly destroyed. Knowing the imperial forces of the Mughals would soon retaliate, Banda and the Sikhs fled to the Sivalik Hills and established their domain there. Other Sikhs who were not part of Banda's forces, they were nonetheless inspired by his actions and they continued to launch attacks in the Lahore and Delhi provinces. Emperor Bahadur Shah was furious and he decided to lead the campaign against the Sikh rebels personally. He was accompanied by his prime minister, Mu'nim Khan. Eventually, the imperial forces trapped Benda in his fort in Himachal Pradesh in the foothills of the Himalayas, but he managed to escape through a secret passage. To deceive the Mughals, a person named Gulabu disguised himself as Banda and he was captured. But eventually, they discovered that this was not the real guy. However, since Mutnim Khan, that is Bahadur Shah's prime minister, had brought the fake guru, the impersonator, to the royal court in 1710, he took the blame for the deception. Bahadur Shah rebuked him and Mutnim Khan, who was thoroughly humiliated, soon fell ill and died. The Sikh bandits continued to clash with the Mughal imperial forces, but they were unable to replicate the the destruction that Banda had accomplished. The Legacy of Bahadur Shah Having captured the fort of Banda Baragi, Bahadur Shah led the army down to Lahore, where they arrived in August of 1711. Emperor Bahadur Shah was known to prefer to sleep in the tents outside rather than in the comfortable rooms of the palace. 
And so he did just that. He set up his encampment outside the city. During this period, however, while he was camped at Lahore, or just outside Lahore, he fell ill and eventually died on February 27, 1712. Now, a lot of stuff happened between August 1711 when he arrived in Lahore and February 27, 1712 when he actually died at Lahore, and we're going to get to that. But just very briefly to discuss Bahadur Shah's legacy he was 69 years old when he died, and he had ruled for about four and a half years. As we mentioned in the previous episode, Aurangzeb, Bahadur Shah's father, had reigned for about 50 years. So by the time Bahadur Shah assumed power, he was already fairly old. The reign of Bahadur Shah was characterized by his laid-back approach to life, though he was somewhat reckless in distributing titles and wealth to his nobles. But the bad thing was that now, after less than five years, the empire had to brace and had to prepare for yet another bloody fratricidal war. And fair warning, from this point forward, the Mughals would be complete chaos. Jahan Darshah Bahadur Shah had four sons. The oldest, named Mu'izzuddin, had been the governor of Multan and Sindh during Aurangzeb's rule, and he held the title of Jahandar Shah. The second son was Azim, we discussed him before. He had been the governor of Bengal and Bihar during Aurangzeb's reign. He had also helped his father, Bahadur Shah, capture Agra during the last fratricidal war, and he remained governor of Bengal during Bahadur Shah's reign and was given the title of Azimushan. The third son was Rafi al-Qadr, who was the governor of Kabul, and he held the title of Rafi al-Shan. Finally, there was Kujista Akhtar, who was given the title of Jahan Shah, and he was the governor of Malwa. Bahadur Shah preferred to keep all four of his sons close to him while he was on campaign, so each son had their own camp set up outside Lahore with their own armies and attendants. Among the four sons, Azim Mushan, we're just going to call him Azim, Azim was regarded as the most capable. He was most likely the wealthiest because he also controlled Bengal through his son, who we'll get to in a moment. He was also the most feared by his brothers. After Mu'nim Khan's fall from grace, the former prime minister, Azim assumed the role of prime minister. And both Azim's mother and one of his wives were Rajput princesses. During Bahadur Shah's reign, Zulfikar Khan had grown to become one of the most powerful nobles in the empire. Zulfikar Khan, we spoke of him before, was the son of Asad Khan, and Asad Khan was Aurangzeb's former vizier, his former prime minister. Both father and son had supported Muhammad Azam against Bahadur Shah during the fratricidal war, but Bahadur Shah forgave them, added them to his administration, and gave them a bunch of titles and positions. Zulfikar Khan's titles included Amir al-Umrah, which means noble of nobles, Bakhshi, which means paymaster, and he was also the governor of the Deccan. However, Zulfikar Khan and Azim Mushan, Azim, that is, Bahadur Shah's son, these two did not see eye to eye, and this rift between them grew even greater when Azim assumed the role of prime minister after Mu'nim Khan's debacle. Mu'nim Khan, the guy who brought the fake guru and got humiliated, 
Zulfikar Khan wanted his father to replace Mutnim Khan's after that fiasco before, but as we mentioned, Azim assumed the role of prime minister. Well now, outside Lahore, with Bahadur Shah nearing death, and with momentum seeming to turn in Azim's favor, Zulfikar Khan reached out to him, offering his services. However, Azim responded with a very cold and indifferent reply, stating that he already had sufficient support. So now Zulfikar Khan was desperate. He was very desperate, and in his desperation, he decided to ally himself with Azim's older brother, Jahan Darshah. Jahan Darshah, we're just going to call him Jahandar most of the time. Jahandar didn't have that much money, at least not compared to Azim. His military wasn't that strong, and he didn't even have the desire to go toe-to-toe with his brother Azim. He knew that Azim had more strength, more power, more wealth than him. Jahandar was actually considering retreating to his province in Multan and live out his life peacefully and not deal with any sort of fratricidal mess. But Zulfikar Khan got to him. He promised him money, he promised him troops, and he encouraged him to form an alliance with his other two brothers, and all together they should be able to defeat Azim. Initially, however, Jahan Darshah was reluctant, but Zulfikar Khan just kept pushing, and he eventually convinced Jahan Darshah that this plan was going to work. Meanwhile, Farooq Siyar, Azim's son, succeeded Azim as the governor of Bengal, And Bengal, as we have mentioned in previous episodes, was the wealthiest province. Zulfikar Khan wanted to deprive Azim of Farooq Siyar's support and the wealth from Bengal. To do this, he sent a fake letter from Emperor Bahadur Shah to Farooq Siyar. At this time, when he sent this fake letter, the emperor was still alive, but he was suffering from the sickness that would ultimately kill him, and it was pretty obvious that he was probably going to die soon. The letter that Zulfikar Khan sent, posing as the emperor, instructed Farooq Siyar to come visit the emperor Bahadur Shah at court. Farooq Siyar received the letter and he shared it with his advisors, and they all were pretty certain that this was a fake. They really doubted the letter's authenticity. But just in case it was true, Farooq Siyar decided to obey. However, they moved slowly. He moved slowly with his entourage as they made their way towards Lahore. Farooq Siyar even sent an envoy ahead to his father to get confirmation if this letter was real. However, as Farooq Siyar and his entourage and his army, as they passed through the Bihar province, he learned that his envoy had been assassinated along the way. And this convinced him that this was certainly a trap and that the letter was fake. So Farooq Siyar stopped. He paused. He stayed in Bihar and set up camp near Patna, which is the capital city of Bihar. And while he was there, Farooq Siyar learned that his grandfather, Emperor Bahadur Shah, had died. Now, Bihar was governed by the Sayyid brothers. We mentioned the Sayyid brothers in a previous episode. The Sayyid brothers had not been nearby when Farooq Siyar first arrived. But now, now as news of the emperor's death spread, the Sayyid brothers rushed to console him and pledged Farooq Siyar their support. The Fratricide Begins As soon as the news of Bahadur Shah's death reached Azim, he proclaimed himself emperor. 
Bahadur Shah's body was still in Lahore and Zulfikar Khan began making funeral arrangements. Azim's advisors encouraged him to go and arrest Zulfikar Khan before he did something crazy. But by the time he finally got around to it, Zulfikar Khan had already figured something out and he had already fled. Zulfikar Khan forgot about the whole funeral thing and took charge of the combined army of the three other brothers. Remember, all four brothers were already at Lahore with their armies. That was Bahadur Shah's thing. Zulfikar Khan had the cannons belonging to the Brotherly Alliance moved from the citadel, that is the fortress, to the camp where Bahadur Shah had spent his final days of life. And together, the allied forces of the three brothers gradually advanced towards Azim's camp. Azim, however, felt confident. He had substantial resources in gold, he had many more soldiers, and he was certain that he would be victorious against his brothers. However, he was reluctant for some odd reason to actually go out and fight his brothers or spend his gold in trying to fight his brothers. His advisors kept pushing him and kept encouraging him to go and do something, go and take some action, go and fight these guys, but he kept dismissing them. He kept stating, just wait a little bit, just wait, just wait. The thing is that Azim believed that his brothers would eventually submit without there being a fight. Or if they did dare to fight him, then they would be defeated. And he kept this idea even as the allied armies approached Azim's camp, even as small skirmishes began to break out, even as cannon barrages broke out between the two sides. On March 14, 1712, the allies launched a full assault on Azim's camp, but they were repelled. The fighting resumed the next day, but by this time, Zulfikar Khan had strategically rearranged the artillery, allowing them to rain devastation down on Azim's forces. Heavily demoralized now, Azim's troops began to desert him later that night. The next day came. On the fourth day of fighting, two of Azim's Rajput allies advised him to use this opportunity and launched a full-scale attack. But Azim was stubborn. He continued to respond, just wait a little, just wait a little. The Rajputs were concerned. They were worried that their chances of victory were slipping away. And so they decided to take matters into their own hands and they launched an attack against the enemy. They seized one of the gun batteries and began blasting at the Alliance, causing all sorts of chaos in the enemy's camp. But instead of taking advantage of the situation and reinforcing the Rajputs, Azim berated them and scolded them and ordered them to fall back. But by this time, two of the Rajput Rajas had been fatally wounded. One of Azim's best generals, Suleiman Khan Pani, tried to salvage the situation, but it was too late. The Rajput troops began to disperse and leave the battlefield, and Suleiman himself was soon killed by a musket shot. By the end of the fourth day, Azim was clearly losing and most of his army had deserted him. All he had left was about two to 3,000 soldiers against the combined army of his three brothers. On the fifth day, with most of his military gone, Azim finally got on top of his elephant to go face the enemy. One of his advisors, Aminu Daula, suggested that they flee to Bengal because it was obviously too late and there's no way to fight these guys now. But once again, Azim refused. He initially refused to go on the offensive and now he refused to go and retreat. 
So these two men are arguing back and forth, and the allies are shooting their cannons at Azim. One of the cannonballs strikes Azim's elephant, and the elephant goes charging blindly forward. Azim, by the way, is still on top of the elephant. The elephant goes over the embankment, and the elephant and Azim sink down into quicksand and die. The battle was over, and Aminu Daula, the guy who was arguing with Azim when the elephant got shot, he was arrested and thrown into prison. Well, not surprisingly, not too long after Azim died, the alliance of the three princes begins to fall apart. The main point of disagreement was how to divide the spoils and how to implement the agreement that had brought them together in the first place. Initially, their agreement had been that Jahan Darshah would be the emperor, Rafiyo Shan would rule the northwest section from Kabul, and Jahan Shah would rule the Deccan. Well, on March 26, 1712, Jahan Shah decided to strike first. His army, led by his commander, Rustam Dil, advanced forward and attacked Jahandar's camp. And in all the chaos of the fighting, Jahandar's son, Azizuddin, was captured. Jahandar Shah, who was not really known for his martial ability, for his fighting ability, for his bravery, he fled the camp on his concubine's horse. His concubine, by the way, was a woman named Lal Kunwar, and we'll discuss her much more in the next episode. But for now, let's focus on the battle. Zulfikar Khan saw that defeat was imminent, and so he pulled out a last-ditch measure and decided to use some deception. He sent two of his men to blend in with the soldiers who were celebrating Jahan Shah's victory. The two men from Zulfikar Khan's side, they mingled with the other soldiers, and since they did not wear identifiable uniforms, this was pretty easy to do. Well, the two men slowly worked their way through the crowd, getting closer and closer to Jahan Shah, until finally they struck and killed him and his son, Farhunda Akhtar. And once everyone learned of his death, Jahan Shah's commanders, including Rustam Dil, quickly fled the battlefield. Meanwhile, the last contender, the last brother that was left, Rafiyo Shan was camped two miles away where Zulfikar Khan had bribed him to remain neutral with two and a half million rupees. But later that night, an elephant carrying Jahan Shah's son's body wandered into Rafiyo Shan's camp and that made him realize that's when he learned that Jahan Shah was dead. Now, Rafi wanted to attack Jahandar's camp that very night while they were still tired and resting, but his inexperienced and somewhat incompetent officers advised him to wait until the morning. Well, when the morning came and the two sides faced off a battle, Rafi Ushan realized that many of his commanders had been bribed by Zulfikar Khan, and they switched sides as soon as the fighting began. Rafiu Shan fought bravely, but he was ultimately shot and killed by a musket. For three days, the bodies of Jahan Shah, his son, and Rafiu Shan were left exposed in the battlefield. Even worse than that, Emperor Bahadur Shah had still not been buried nearly a month after his death. His body was still laying where he had died in his tent all this time. Eventually, after three days, all of the bodies were properly buried. I'm going to read you an excerpt that summarizes this period of time. The first one to get himself killed, drowned in the Ravi River on 18th March 1712, at 47 years of age, 
after having been defeated by a coalition of his three brothers, was Azimushan, who had earlier served as governor of Bengal, Bihar, and Odisha. He appears to have been a competent man, whose most faithful contribution to Indian history was his 1696 agreement with the British East India Company to build its Fort William, named after King William III, on the eastern banks of the Hughley River in what was to become the great city of Calcutta. The three remaining brothers predictably disagreed about what to do next and quickly fell out with each other. At another battle near Lahore, on 29 March 1712, Jahan Shah, the last man standing, emerged victorious. The new emperor, described by contemporary historians as a drunken imbecile, was to reign for eleven months and two weeks, during which period his favorite concubine, a lascivious dancing girl come prostitute named Lal Kunwar, rose to the position of empress consort. Dirk Collier, The Mughals and Their India Coronation and Retribution Jahan Darshah's coronation took place on March 29, 1712. Those nobles who supported him were rewarded. Asad Khan, who is Zulfikar Khan's father, retained his position as Vakil Mutlak, which is basically the emperor's representative. Zulfikar Khan, who was the mastermind behind Jahandar's victory, he was appointed prime minister with a rank of 8,000. Jahandar's foster brother, Kokaltash, was made the paymaster. However, he really wanted to be the prime minister, and this desire would lead to friction between him and Zulfikar Khan. Most of the nobles who had supported Azim, they fled to Bengal and Bihar to join with his son, Farooq Siyar. Those who did not escape were arrested, thrown into dungeons, had their property seized, and many of them were also tortured. Some of them, including the commander Rustam Dil, were executed. Zulfikar Khan then proceeded to eliminate all other rivals that he could get his hands on. He started with the families of Jahandar Shah's dead brothers. Azim's oldest son, Muhammad Karim, he was captured and beheaded. Three other sons of Azim, two sons of Rafiu Shan and two sons of Jahan Shah were all captured and thrown into prison, as were the sons of Bahadur Shah's brothers, Muhammad Azam and Kambaksh. Zulfikar Khan's ruthlessness was unprecedented in the Mughal Empire. This was the first time where the nobles who had supported the losing princes were punished. Most of the time, the nobles who supported the loser were pardoned if they agreed to support the new regime. So Zulfikar Khan's actions angered many people in Agra. In the next episode, inshallah, we'll see how Zulfikar Khan's ruthless retribution led to the swift downfall of Jahan Darshah and will also witness the continued decay of the Mughal dynasty as the kings become pawns. You've been listening to the Islamic History Podcast and we hope you've enjoyed the show. You can support the Islamic History Podcast and get exclusive content by subscribing to our premium channel, Islamic History Exclusive. If you're an Apple or Spotify user, open the app and search for Islamic History Exclusive. If you're listening on Podbean, become a patron in the Podbean app and you'll get access to all of our premium content.
You can also join by visiting patreon.com slash Islamic history. Our premium content includes a series on the life of Salahuddin, an ongoing series about the Umayyad dynasty, and one I think you'll really enjoy, our latest series on the Soviet-Afghan war. Altogether, that's well over 50 premium episodes. Before we go, I want to thank Brother Zulfikar Sarosh for his research on the Mughal Empire and his continued support of the show. And thanks to all of our premium subscribers. Stay tuned for a short clip from our series on the Soviet-Afghan War. And until next time, my name is Mutaki Ismail for the Islamic History Podcast. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuhu. Once Iran had its revolution, the Soviet Union calculated that the United States would then open its arms to Afghanistan because they had to now make up for losing Iran. And in fact, as we mentioned, that was one of the reasons the United States didn't want to help Afghanistan in the first place was so that they wouldn't upset Iran. But now that Iran was an enemy of the United States, the Soviet Union thought that the U.S. would start reaching out to Afghanistan. But that wasn't true because up until 1980, when this whole war started, the United States had very little interest in Afghanistan. Essentially, this new regime in Iran was unpredictable. It was a wild card for the Soviet Union. They couldn't control it. They, do, they didn't know what to expect of it. And with the, the hostility brewing between the United States and Iran, this led to U.S. activity, U.S. naval and military activity in this region. And there was speculation that maybe the United States might try to invade Iran or try to overthrow the Shah. And in fact, they, they did try to invade as far as trying to uh, rescue the hostages. But anyway, the point is that with all this going on in Iran, the Soviet Union felt that it had to hold on to Afghanistan and couldn't let it go. So that's the first event that prompted the Soviet Union to invade Afghanistan. Now on to the second event the Camp David Accords. The Camp David Accords were really two agreements between the nations of Israel and Egypt that led to normalized relations between these two. The discussions actually began in September 1978, and they involved the Israeli Prime Minister Menachem Begin and the Egyptian President Anwar Sadat. The United States president, Jimmy Carter, he acted as a mediator between the two sides and the discussions took place at the presidential retreat in Camp David, Maryland. The first agreement between these two nations, Israel and Egypt, ended the hostilities and the state of war that had, that had existed between Egypt and Israel pretty much since 1948, since the Arab-Israeli War of 1948. The agreement that normalized relations that ended the state of war between Israel and Egypt required Israel to return the Sinai Peninsula to Egypt, which it had occupied since 1967. The second agreement outlined a framework for general peace in the Middle East. This framework included 
normalized relations between Israel and the other Middle Eastern and Arab nations in the region, and it also included self-governance for the Palestinians living in the West Bank and Gaza. Well, Israel got its peace treaty with Egypt, and as of 2020, I believe, or 2021, Israel also has normalized relations with most of the, of the nations in the Middle East. But Palestine still doesn't have its self-governance. At best, Palestine has limited autonomy. It's not, a, it's not an independent nation. Its survival at this point in time is completely dependent upon Israel. And obviously, Palestinians can't do whatever they want because they can't have an army. So it's not an independent nation. I believe that was season six, discussing 100 years after the Ottoman Empire. And we go into depth regarding the Palestine-Israel situation. Now, before the Camp David Accords, before this agreement, most Arab Middle Eastern nations, especially Egypt, were hostile to Israel. During this period of hostility from 1948 to 1979, Israel was backed by the United States and most of the Western world, while the Arab countries were somewhat, kind of, sort of backed by the Soviet Union. Not a fully, not 100%, but somewhat backed by the Soviet Union. They're all kind of in the same camp as we don't like the Americans and the Israelis. Under Gamal Abdel Nasser, president of Egypt, under Gamal Abdel Nasser, Egypt was officially non-aligned. It wasn't either in the U.S. camp or the Soviet camp, but it still accepted aid from the Soviet Union. The Soviet Union was okay with this state of affairs. They were, they'd rather have Egypt neutral than being a full U.S. ally. That was better for the Soviet Union. However, after Camp David, Egypt was now firmly, 100% within the United States sphere of influence. The United States began to give Egypt almost $2 billion annually in military and foreign aid, and that still continues to this day. But now that the Soviet Union had lost Egypt as a neutral nation, and in fact Egypt was now a U.S. ally, the Soviet Union was concerned about losing more influence in the Muslim world, and this made them even more determined not to lose Afghanistan as well. So now we discuss two of the major events. The Iranian Revolution in 1979 and the Camp David Accords also in 1979. And now we get the final event, once again, also in 1979. 